Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassan, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast of the Chatham House Africa program. Welcome back to Africa Aware. It's great to have you listening. On this episode, we'll be discussing the civil war in Sierra Leone, as this week marks the 24th anniversary of the signing of the Lomé Peace Accords, which formally brought an end to the conflict. The war, which lasted from 1991 to 2002, claimed the lives of over 50,000 people and displaced millions more. Over the course of this episode, we'll discuss the reasons behind the war and the peace process that brought it to an end. We will also discuss the progress that Sierra Leone has made, with a particular focus on accountability, with President and CEO of Crisis Group, Dr. Comfort Ero, who was actually Crisis Group's West Africa Project Director, based in Freetown during the Civil War. This podcast is an output of our project entitled African Peace Processes, Lessons Learned, supported by the United Nations Development Programme, UNDP. We hope this is an informative listen. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast here today, Comfort. Thank you for having me on, Yusuf. Really glad to be able to join Chatham House Podcast. Of course, you are currently the CEO of the International Crisis Group, but years ago, you were a West Africa researcher, and that meant that you were one of the foremost analysts on Sierra Leone, and it's great to have the opportunity to speak to you about this country, especially when we're reflecting on the anniversary of the peace accords in the context of elections, of course, that have just taken place. To provide our listeners that haven't got a great understanding of the history of Sierra Leone civil war, can you provide us an overview of the civil war and the factors that led to its outbreak? Yeah, I mean, this is a momentous time. And those of us who were working on Sierra Leone 20 odd years ago wondered what the fate of the country would be, given the gruesomeness and the the horror of the war, the um, violence that was inflicted on the civilian populations as well. And all the features one sees in many of the crises, past and present, Yusuf, that we we work on. There were also a feature of Sierra Leone's 11-year civil war that started in 1991. So a corrupt and and accountable um, government manipulation of ethnicity for political ends. This was a hallmark of of the country's civil war. But, you know, we should go behind these headings um, to understand the factors that that triggered and led to the war. Um, I think two things for me stand out in terms of explaining um, the war just beyond the usual things that we would say about corrupt and accountable government. One was the role of alienated youth that were in the fight, that were fighting both on the government side, but also on the rebellion, um, revolutionary united front side. They were both, um, in both ranks, on both sides, the youth were a major feature. And I think the second dimension of the war in sort of explaining and providing an overview, I think one of the important features was just the regional dimension of the conflict, and particularly the role of neighbouring Liberia, who was already in the throes of its own brutal and violent breakdown of society and its own civil war from 1989. But the Charles Taylor then, a warlord, was backing the rebellion in Liberia. But the roots of the crisis are very much Sierra Leone's history um, since independence in 1961 and the failed attempts at democratization, or at least the inability to establish 
an accountable government. And one, of course, can't exclude the damage that was done by a lengthy colonial rule under the British tutelage um, that made independence a very fraught experience um, and baked in some of the divide and rule that we saw during the colonial period that was baked into the independence, including patronage, very much the hallmark of the conflict, um, an authoritarian style of governance, especially in the rural areas. And just finally, I think the habits of trust and accountability between people and rulers, these were absent. Politicians had for decades squandered the country's resources. So Sierra Leone is famous also for the role of rich mineral deposits, particularly diamonds, in its war. And diamonds sort of provided lucrative returns. And it was a way in which a melody of politicians, businessmen, soldiers, civil servants formed this network patronage or commerce that spread from Sierra Leone across the West Africa coastline into Middle East, the US and Europe. And these undermined state's institutions. And it wasn't surprising that in this tense standoff of divide and rule, the governance system was pretty poor and fragile, did not service people, years of bad government. And the way in which the country's natural resources were frittered away, I think, then struck at the chord of society. And it wasn't surprising, though I wouldn't say inevitable, but it wasn't surprising in the end that this social contract broke down because of the nature of governance and the exploitative nature of that bad government under military and civilian rule. Thank you so much for that robust overview, Comfort. As a researcher, of course, based in Freetown and that period, what are your mm. sharpest memories? There were so many, I think, as I said to you, the militarization or even militanization of the youth. I think that for me is central to understanding Sierra Leone's civil war and the alienation of that particular group um, played out um, in the war on both sides. So I think that's one. There are, I think, you know, positive and negative and some worrying and innovative things that came out of the war. I mean, I arrived into Sierra Leone at the time where the Lome Peace Agreement was just being, the Lome Peace Agreement that was signed in 1999 was, had been sort of shot at. And now there were attempts with the British Special Forces and the uh, reinvigorated UN trying to piece that together. And I think one of the things that struck me, partly because every time I left the country to either go to a neighbouring Liberia or Burkina Faso or Nigeria or further afield, every time I left the country, my bags were searched and people searched to make sure that we weren't um, carrying illicit goods or we weren't carrying diamonds. That's how that's how serious the diamond trade was. And I mean, we've already, I already mentioned at the top that it was one of the, the factors that tore the country apart. I mean, I think one of the innovations that came out and, um, you know, our, our good friend, your, your boss, Alex Fines, was instrumental in helping, for example, think through various regulatory efforts established as a result of Sierra Leone civil war, but also in Angola and Liberia through the role of different various UN panels to think through ways in which to regulate these important resources. And then out of Sierra Leone and Liberia came this innovative process called the Kimberley process, again, to, to regulate and monitor the flow 
of the country's natural resources, such as diamond, and to make sure that everybody understood, both business, international and regional, understood that the role of what famously became blood diamonds, that you are implicated by virtue of having these this important minerals, this important stone, um, you are implicated in Sierra Leone's um, in Sierra Leone civil war. So I think that was one of the sharpest memories for me and that good innovation that came out of regulatory efforts. I think the other interesting thing for me, Yusuf, and it's a piece of work that years after when I came back to crisis group, we did a study on the role of civil defense forces or vigilante groups, as they, as some people will call them. And they, were, they played a significant role in Sierra Leone. The famous Kamajors in the south of the country, they, they evolved from a band of young men defending their villages and they rose to the core to be a state-armed national militia. And they started fighting alongside the regular foreign forces. And, you know, one of the interesting things for me is that they were really revered by Leoneans. They were defined by a particular group of Leoneans, and they came from the Mende group. They were revered as brave at defending their home, um, but they later became very instrumental in protecting, at the time, a democratically elected government after the 1996 elections, which were brutal because the RUF tried to stop people from voting, chopping people's hands off. But yet at the same time, although they were revered as heroes, they were also vilified as brutal tribal militias, um, looting and involved in killing suspected you know, rebel collaborators. And I was really struck because I always saw them in that, that light of reverence. And I was very shocked when the special court of Sierra Leone that was established by the government in the UN to deal with the war crimes perpetuated by the RUF. We thought at the time was going only for the RUF. We were very, I was very surprised. I think others were surprised that the leader of the Kamajors, the leader of this vigilante group that was revered, suddenly um, was indicted. So Chief Sam Hinga Norman, suddenly we found that he was going to be prosecuted. And we were all, we all stood there and were like, wow, you, you went for this group that we all thought had been seen as the saviours. And yet the point was that they had committed atrocities as well. And, and the court had to be judicious in its own manner as well. So that's one of my sharpest memories. And then just two more points. Yusuf, I, I go back to what I said to you at the beginning was about, it's hard to tell the story of Sierra Leone's civil war without mentioning the regional politics and the role of the region, and particularly Liberia, but also this innovation by the regional body, the um, Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, and the idea that a regional economic body would deploy first in Liberia and then extend its remit into Sierra Leone. And then Another innovation was that it would later then be rehatted to return to Liberia in the form of a UN peacekeeping. And that was interesting to see the birth of regional peacekeepers playing this very important role in their neighborhood, because I think the regional leaders, although they were part of the problems, they're also part of the solutions in trying to get Sierra Leone out of the woods as well. So that, that for me was just very interesting. And then on a personal note, a lot of the good friends that I have today emerged from Sierra Leone. I'm still very close to them. Sierra Leone also shaped 
the choices that I made. Um, it brought me to Liberia where I worked for the UN. I, I wanted to see for myself and focus on Liberia because I thought it was important that international actors, regional actors also spent time thinking about Liberia for its own sake and not just within the context of Sierra Leone. And one of the things that I pushed for within Crisis Group, one of our recommendations was the idea of an international contact group focused on Liberia. So it was within Sierra Leone that I became clear to me that if you want to resolve Sierra Leone, you have to do with Liberia for Liberia's sake and not just from the Sierra Leonean side of, of things. Thank you so much for that. And I can only assume the challenge in delving into those memories slightly. I think to really bring up a point that you mentioned quite early on there in relation to the international impact or international treaties or processes following the civil war that took place, including, mm. of course, the Kimberley process. How effective mm. were UN sanctions on Sierra Leone and Liberia? Because actually up until the 90s, sanctions weren't quite normalized in the international field. Yeah, that's a good question because, you know, it's a mixed record in terms of the utility the threat of sanctions and whether they could play an effective deterrent role. In Sierra Leone, I mean, there were sanctions on Sierra Leone, but those sanctions were also extended to Liberia, who was seen as a party to the, to the conflict. And the initial um, sanctions on Sierra Leone was in Zimbabwe from the UN in 97 as well. And then also there was an Zimbabwe and sanctions imposed on the government of Liberia, I think in May 2001 in response to a report issued by the UN expert panel. And I believe Alex was on that one. And it was established to monitor the violations of the arms embargo on the Revolutionary United Front rebellion as well. And I think the reasons why they were imposed on Liberia was because Liberia was, there was evidence through the panel's work and others, civil society, human rights watch particularly um, was very focused on this alongside the crisis group and others. There was evidence that Liberia was offering safe haven, training, etc. to the IUF in exchange for illegal diamond mining in the rebel Eldario Sicilian. And then in, in October of the same year, 2001, the panel of experts said that they found what they described significant signs of improvement in the region but however there was still an arms embargo there was still an embargo on Liberia because of Liberia's own engagement on that as well and if I remember the panel because we used it in our own report in terms of how to manage the uncertainty and how to manage and how to deal with corruption in Sierra Leone post the conflict we used it in crisis group to say look because the panel had noted um, on diamonds that the UN had put a ban on the export of Liberian diamonds. We said that it was important to monitor the movement of smuggled diamonds from Sierra Leone into Liberia in exchange for arms. And what was clear to us, and I think it was very clear to the panel at the time, was that the arms embargo from the UN, and it speaks to your point, Yusuf, you the arms embargo had created a sort of a different problem. Since it was impossible to sell Liberians' own rough diamonds officially, dealers were seeking ways to camouflage the Liberian diamonds from the neighbouring countries, including Sierra Leone. So ironically, sanctions that were sort of imposed to prevent Sierra Leonean diamonds from being smuggled into Liberia were causing legitimately mined Liberian diamonds to be smuggled into Sierra Leone just because of this 
the, the nature of the of the sanctions. So I think in despite lingering violations, I would say that the UN imposed sanctions on Sierra Leone were not truly effective until the sanctions were imposed on Liberia, hence my focus on Liberia. And after the UN expert panel of Sierra Leone found that Liberia was actively supporting the RUF and undermining the sanctions on, on different levels, the international community realised that it needed to actually begin to deal with the leakages, timber, other types of illicit things that were coming out of Liberia. So in a sense, you needed a sort of a regional approach to deal with illicit trafficking and illegitimate sale of Syrian's diamonds because they were flowing into Liberia in exchange for arms. And Liberia itself was undermining the sanctions regime in Syria. And so suddenly you had to rethink how sanctions themselves could now be extended and imposed on Charles Taylor's own regime to curtail his activities in Sierra Leone. So it was positive on one level, it was effective on, on another level, but that effectiveness required Liberia to be tied into the regime. And that took some time for international actors to, to realise that Liberia was part of the problem and the solutions as well in terms of the sanctions. A fantastic overview there, Comfort, of the relationship between sanctions and the ability, let's say, for Sierra Leone and Liberia's populations to be impacted in a way, in somewhat a confusing way in relation to how people can package and get around sanctions themselves as well. Going into another tool used by the international community and by Sierra Leone itself, we saw in 2002 the setting up of the special court. What role did that play in post-conflict reconciliation? I mean, it's a good question because this was the era of the peace versus justice conundrum that people had. I mean, I think what was unique about the Sierra Leonean one was the way it was agreed. There are different schools of thought as to how the court came about, the timing in which it came about after the collapse of the peace process, the re reconfigured UN and then the role of the UK that sort of took a leading role. And there was a decision then in the midst of trying to piece it all together again and trying to bring an end to the atrocities of the RUF. A decision was taken to deal with the crimes that were committed by the RUF. And also because I think international actors were looking for different ways in which to hem in, in which to halt the violence, the heinous crimes being committed by the RUF. And one of the solutions and one of the ideas was the idea of a, of a special court. Now, I was struck by the range of the court's reach. I, and I think a number of watchers of Sierra Leone at the time, really thought that it was a court that was going to go primarily after Charles Taylor and those who were linked to him, i.e. the RUF. So internally to Sierra Leone, we thought it was going to be about the RUF. And externally, we thought it was going to be about Liberia. But because of the way the prosecutor at the time, David Crane, described or talked about a criminal enterprise that went as far as sort of Libya, you know, and other parts of, of West Africa, but also into Europe, we then also assumed that, yes, Charles Taylor was going to be part of that, that maybe Blaise at the time, president of Burkina, would be part of that 
criminal enterprise network that David Crane was talking about. And then we thought, okay, because a, a number of these fighters, both in Sierra Leone and in Liberia and other parts of West Africa, were all in Libya training and ready to, to launch these various insurgencies, that it would also um, extend into to Libya. <laughs> but not for one second did we think that it would target a group like the Civil Defence Force as well. How effective, you know, it's the same as the sanctions. I think in Sierra Leone, when you look at the crimes, the horror that was inflicted on civilians, you needed to find a way in which to deal with justice. You needed to find a way in which to hold a range of actors, those who had command and control, um, as the court described it. You needed to find a way to hold them accountable alongside the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which existed before the special court. But the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was never going to prosecute. So there needed to be this other wing, other arm. So this is how it came about. And it was innovative, hybrid, because it was both international and national. It was bringing justice closer to be home, on the grounds, on the compounds of Sierra Leone. It relied both on international, regional national experts. There were key concerns about the legacy of the court, what it would leave behind in terms of judicial practice, in terms of building a more robust judicial system for Sierra Leone within the broader context of judicial reform that needed to take place. But also what was interesting for me, because by the time Charles Taylor, of course, was arraigned and brought back to Sierra Leone, I was then working for the UN mission. Now, I was a crisis group West Africa project director at the time. And I was caught in the middle of the recommendation that crisis group had made in relation to Charles Taylor, which is to allow him to exit to Nigeria. And I was caught up with a very upset civil society human rights group who were saying, why are we allowing him to escape? Now, the benefit of hindsight allows me to say this. Crisis group at the time was was saying that, look, we believe that Charles Taylor is part of the problem, but also part of the solution. The exit does not close the door to justice. We think his day in court will still come. And that's exactly what happened. And I was in Liberia in 2006 when he was brought back to Liberia and then taken directly to the court. And, you know, it was both a personal, for me, both personal and a professional front. It brought an important closure because I felt that the grievance of civilians and also the prosecutor accusing crisis group of having one set of rules for Milosevic at the time in Serbia and one set of rules for Liberians and civilians and we said no we, we need to weave this carefully in a way that doesn't shut the door off to justice but finds a way in which to start thinking through a peace process for Liberia why we try to think through post conflict, reconciliation and justice for Syria. It's very careful balancing. And as I said, with hindsight, I can say this at the time, it was very fraught to understand how this was going to play out. And it was an indication of that delicate balance between peace and justice as well. Thank you so much for those insights that I doubt anyone else would know the specifics of. To follow up on that slightly and to ask about how the legacy of the peace accords shaped Sierra Leone's political, social and economic landscape, in your opinion, in the years following the conflict? 
I started to look at what Sierra Leone from a distance when I moved to work in Liberia fully for the UN and then moved further afield into, into South Africa, was watching it then in terms of how it was managing its own transitional justice. And then I moved even further afield when Crisis Group itself decided back in 2012 that we felt that the time had come for us to exit from Syria in terms of a country of concern within the context of our own mandate of work on deadly violent conflict. I mean, I think this is a timely conversation because it comes in the midst of, I think, very fraught elections that just happened on the weekend of 24th, 25th of June. And I mean, at one level, I mean, I think when you look at where Syrian came from and the failed peace processes during the 90s, when you think about the pain, the rupture, the breakdown of states and society, when you think about how this conflict spread into neighbouring Guinea, into Liberia, and the way in which it sucked in the region, when you think about the vast peacekeeping mission that was deployed and the role the region played in terms of diplomacy and weaving the country back together, I think it's important to note that the recovery efforts, yes, had many twists and turns, but at the same time, Sierra Leone is and some of those deep fault lines that led to the country's civil war, some of them are still there in terms of sort of a feeble governance structure. You know, some of the hallmarks are still very much there, but one cannot deny the fact that the road to recovery has also been sustained and that Sierra Leone has continued to march forward in terms of that recovery. And there's been a lot of evident rebuilding physically in terms of you know, schools and clinics, roads repaired, the launching of a sort of a large-scale mining operations. And also there was a period in which the economy had strengthened and rallied um, and doubled in the 10 years following the war. You saw the return of multi-party um, democracy in the form of successful elections, both nationally and locally. Um, and you saw the peaceful transfer of power to the main opposition in a context in a country that had only known one party rule and also military rule. So then I paused because of what I saw with the Ebola crisis, you know, back in 2014. And suddenly you saw, I mean, it was more glaring in, in Liberia, but then you saw this sudden breakdown of trust or the, the trust between states and society was not as baked in as we thought it had been because there was a lot of questioning of the government, its capabilities, resources to deal with this pandemic. And, and I was wondering how that was going to play out. I think it played out in a more negative way in Liberia, but it didn't have that same meaning in Sierra Leone. So I think much less has been done to help repair the trust that helps a community function or to sort of relief and deal with the sort of a lot of the psychological burden and the transitional justice mechanisms were supposed to be crucial to that. Issues around dealing with the special court was supposed to be crucial to helping rebuild the country. I think there were times when the transition was contested. There were times where there were real question marks about 
the government's, successive government's capabilities to deal with one of the hallmarks of the elections, which is corruption. It was very much in the early years of President Kappa's government. I think there were serious questions about the government's ability to deal with corruption and to address accountability. But nonetheless, I also think that it's a very different country from the one that I entered 20 years ago. And it's a country that has, yes, faced difficulty, but has rebuilt itself. It hasn't gone back to war. When you look at all the other countries, when you look at the state of democracy in West Africa, when you look at what is happening in the Sahel today, what is happening in, in neighboring Guinea, when you look further afield into Sudan, when you look at other failed peace processes, Central African Republic, then Sierra Leone is held and held together. And I, I think we should celebrate that, even if there are still upheavals, even if there are still signs of bad practices from the past that has the potential to continue to threaten its march towards democratization. And I think there are concerns about what happened um, the weekend of the 24th of June with the, with the elections, where there was accusation from the opposition about the role of the military and the role of the military and the police in relation to the election. So there are still elements of concern, but nonetheless, it hasn't gone back to civil war, unlike other countries in the region and in other parts of Africa. Once again, thank you so much for the analysis. To come mm-hmm. towards an end, I'd love to hear your perspective on what you think the anniversary of the peace accords and the ability for those to serve as a catalyst for reflection, renewed commitment to peaceful process, not just in Sierra Leone, but beyond Sierra Leone. And what can the continent and countries currently, you know, in the middle of conflict, both internal, but also on the borderlands, learn from Sierra Leone? One really good news and a testimony to where Sierra Leone is, is that Sierra Leone was um, earlier this month elected to serve on the Security Council as a non-permanent member in the um, period of 2024-2025. And the country has shown an interest in focusing on threats to international peace and security in West Africa, including in the Gulf of Guinea. That's how it wants to use its period on the council. And this will be the second term for Sierra Leone. I think the first one was um, in 1970-71. So, I mean, that is something important. And you know, in a country like Sierra Leone will come with all the experiences to deal with international peace and security. So I think it's worth noting that as well. For me, I think one of the key issues for me was, and I, I emphasised it throughout, was understanding the role of the region as part of the problem, but part of the solution. Um, I think that was very much an important factor. And it took a long time for international actors to appreciate that you couldn't deal with Sierra Leone until you dealt with Liberia. But I want to underline that you needed to deal with Liberia for Liberia's own sake. And that not just to deal with Liberia as the trouble, or the troublesome country, or the warlord Charles Taylor as a troublemaker, but you needed to deal with that country's own crisis, which at the time was going through its own sort of protracted civil war. 
And so that for me was a big takeaway that as you come into these peace processes, that you needed to understand fully or have a very comprehensive understanding of the sources of conflict, but also the drivers and what is fueling and what is sustaining. And also just continuing with the with the regional feature. I think also international actors needed to engage with a region also that was implicated in the war, but was also playing a, both a military and diplomatic role in the war. As I said, you have this innovation that a sub-regional body in the form of ECOWAS that was created to deal with economic integration found itself at the centre of having to deploy peacekeepers, peace enforcement, not just in Liberia when that war happened, but into Sierra Leone. Those peacekeepers were instrumental to allowing the UN to deploy into Sierra Leone. Those same peacekeepers were rehatted in 2003 and rehatted and deployed into Liberia. History has to tell the story of the role of West Africa's own forces, West Africa's own regional body. And ECHO was very much seen as the poster child, very much seen as a foundation of Africa's own multilateral peace and security architecture, what the AU eventually has become. And I think it's important that in telling the story of the African Union, of Africa's own peace and security architecture, you have to start with what unfolded um, with ECOWAS in Sierra Leone and Liberia. I also think that although the tensions were pretty fraught between the region and the United Nations, particularly the Security Council, and the regional leaders plus certain individual bilateral countries, i.e. here in the UK particularly. It was essential to get both the UK and Nigeria on the same page in terms of navigating peace and security. I'm talking about 1999 when the peace process collapsed, when Nigeria was returning to democratic rule after a period of military rule. And there was an alignment between the UK and Nigeria and the UN. Finally, that there was a recognition that to bring peace to Syria, you needed the regional powerhouse in Nigeria to play a role, you know, and Abbasanjou was seen as a, as a significant regional international statesperson. You had Tony Blair's government for two years into it coming to play a lead role on that lead nation, both at the regional level but also from the Security Council, I think was crucial, despite the tensions between leaders within the UN and despite the appearance of a sort of a standoff between the UK and Nigeria within the UN. You know, you needed the Security Council, you needed the regional bodies, you needed the two lead nations, Nigeria and the UK, to help rebuild the peace process and then to begin to construct a pathway out of Sierra Leone's crisis, but then to start thinking about how do you deal with the problem of Liberia in that story um, as well. And then finally, I say this from the Liberia perspective, you just needed international actors to help deliver that 
peace process, <laughs> to nudge, to cajole, to push reluctant leaders, you know, to bypass corrupt practices, to help rebuild the country because those things are still very much alive and to help rebuild the army and the, and the police and all the key institutions that were necessary to ensure that Syria didn't slide back into conflict. And that's very much the story of a very complex division of labour, and I underline division of labour, between actors in the end who had to work themselves out. And the only way they could work themselves out was to have that intimate relationship. It wasn't easy, <laughs> it was very terse, very difficult, but in the end that division of labour was crucial to getting Syria out of, of war and was also crucial for Liberia as well. I can only say thank you so much, Comfort. All of your answers have been incredible to gain insights into Sierra Leone and its journey towards peace as we reflect, of course, on another anniversary of the Peace Accords. Thank you so much for your time. Really look forward to welcoming you on the podcast once again. Thank you so much, Yusuf. I really enjoyed going down this memory lane with you as well. Thank you. Best wishes. And that brings us to the end of this episode. We do hope the conversation was informative. Please do subscribe to us on the platform you're listening to us on and do leave a review as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. I've been your host, Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye.